Today on Something You Should Know, there's a really boring 18-minute YouTube video you should watch because it may be the best thing that happens to you today. Also, there are several things you would think scientists should probably know that baffles them completely. Well, the thing that I think shocks most people is the fact that 95% of the universe is missing. We actually only know about 5% of the universe, you know, which is the kind of stuff that we're made of. And this is a, such a long-standing mystery. Then there are many words you likely use when you write that you don't actually need. And do you have people in your life who make you feel bad or stupid or ignorant when you talk to them? That's the gaslight effect. The gaslight effect describes what happens to you when you begin to second-guess yourself because you've allowed another person to define your reality and to erode your sense of self, your confidence, and your judgment. All this today on Something You Should Know. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. So, so I, I just finished watching. Well, I didn't finish it. I watched most of it. it it's an 18-minute YouTube video on how to fold towels. <laughs> and it's narrated by a woman who barely speaks above a whisper. And about 2 million people have viewed this thing. And it's not because people really need to know how to fold towels. You probably mastered that a while back in your life. Instead, people watch it because an increasing number of people report experiencing something called Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, or ASMR. It's a whole body tingling sensation that listening to a soft, monotonous voice can trigger. ASMR is a neurological experience that causes people to experience what has been termed a brain orgasm. It's a, it's a tingling, pleasurable sensation similar to goosebumps that begins at the head or neck and works its way throughout the body. The most common triggers of this sensation include educational videos, <laughs> like how to fold a towel, having your hair cut, yeah, I've had that. I've had that kind of tingly sensation when I've had my hair cut. Uh, feeling empathetic, enjoying music or art, listening to slow, enunciated speech, and experiencing close personal contact. It feels so good that people keep re-watching this incredibly dull video just to have that experience over and over again. What's interesting is that science doesn't recognize this as a real thing. It doesn't ever appear to have been studied or written about scientifically. And it doesn't happen to everyone. It is a self-reported experience, meaning some people say it happens to them, doesn't happen to everyone, and no one really knows what it is or why. Nevertheless, if it happens to you, it really feels good. There's a link to that video in the show notes. And that is something you should know. 
In the world of science, there are always new breakthroughs being announced. New research of what men in white lab coats have discovered that could change your life or your understanding of life. And it's all very exciting and interesting. But what you don't hear so much about are the things that have science and scientists baffled. <laughs> things that make no sense at all. And that is what Michael Brooks knows about. Michael holds a PhD in quantum physics, but he works as an author and journalist. He's co-host of a podcast called Science-ish, which looks at the scientific issues raised by popular culture fiction, like Hollywood films and television. And he's written some really interesting books, including At the Edge of Uncertainty and 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, The Most Intriguing Scientific Mysteries of Our Times. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be on here. So what's interesting is, is not only that, of course, science doesn't know a lot of things, there is much yet to come, but that science is aware of things that it can't explain, that make no sense. So rather than discuss this in the abstract, let's just dive in here with one of those things that baffles science. Well, the thing that I think shocks most people is the fact that 95% of the universe is missing. So uh, we have these things called dark energy and dark matter that you may have heard of. And what they are is kind of placeholders. Uh, so so we, when we're thinking in terms of the mass and energy of the universe, you know, Einstein's equation e equals mc squared, where you can have an, a kind of you know, energy that can turn into mass and mass that can turn into energy. So scientists think of things in terms of the whole sort of mass and energy of the universe. And 70% of that is a thing called dark energy, which is making the universe's expansion accelerate. So we're actually in a universe that is, is not, you know, after the Big Bang, it isn't slowing down this expansion of space-time. It's actually speeding up. And the only way for it to be speeding up is if there's a source of energy within the universe. And we don't know what that source of energy is, but it's somewhere, you know, around us, you know, within the space and time that we exist in. And this um, is an absolute mystery to scientists. And it, it makes up 70% of the, the known universe. And then actually 25% is a thing called dark matter. So when we look out uh, at the way galaxies move and clusters of galaxies move, the way we see them move tells us that there's some stuff out there exerting gravity on them. But it's stuff that we can't see and that we can't seem to interact with in any way. And we've looked for it for decades and decades now, and we can't seem to find what it is. And uh, this is now known as dark matter. So when you have those two things up, we actually only know about 5% of the universe, you know, which is the kind of stuff that we're made of. And this is a, such a long-standing mystery. So, so dark matter was first um, hypothesized in 1933. Uh, dark energy sort of came into our, onto our radars in 1997. And uh, you know, we have literally no clue what either of them are, where they come from. And since we're talking about outer space, let's let's keep our discussion there for a moment and talk about the wow signal. Uh, because what's so fascinating is that with all the talk that you hear in popular culture about aliens and contact with aliens and beings from other planets, science has been pretty strict in saying that there really isn't much there. There really isn't much to discuss about having made contact with alien beings up till now, except that one time back in the 70s. So, so talk about that. This is a thing called the wow signal, and it came through in uh, 1977. Basically, there was a big telescope in Ohio called the Big Ear, 
And it was just, you know, pointing out into space and listening for what we thought, you know, might be an alien signal. So it was tuned to the frequency of the hydrogen molecule vibration, uh, which is the most abundant molecule in the universe. So, so the thinking was that, that, you know, if aliens were going to signal at us, they would signal at that frequency to kind of let us know, hey, we, you know, we've spotted the most abundant thing in the universe as well. And then one night this signal came in and uh, it immediately disappeared. You know, we never saw anything about it again. We just never saw anything like it again. But the guy who was uh, reading the output of the telescope, and he was on, did it on his kitchen table, it was a guy called Jerry Amon. He was looking at the printout from the telescope and uh, he saw this blip, you know, that was exactly what an alien signal would look like. He wrote, wow, next to it, wow, exclamation mark. At that point, it kind of became known as the wow signal. And it's extremely frustrating because the way the telescope works, you know, it, it wasn't chasing that signal around the sky and you know, it wasn't moving like the sort of modern dishes that we have. It was just literally passing over the sky or the sky was passing over it, I should say. And, you know, we just saw that one signal. And then by the time the same patch of sky came around and that was an empty patch of sky, uh, I think in Sagittarius. And there was nothing there, nothing out there, you know, no planets. Um, they did a, a massive sweep for what might be military satellites or civilian satellites, uh, anything that might have emitted this signal from that region of space. Nobody ever found anything. And so it remains a mystery to this day. You know, was it was it an alien spacecraft that was just passing by? Or, you know, I like to think of it as, you know, maybe it just sort of went into reverse. And you know how those municipal vehicles emit like a beeping when they go into reverse. Maybe that was what we, you know, we picked up. We don't have a clue, but uh, it's still out there as one of the, one of the big mysteries in science. But when you say that it, it was a signal that that could be from aliens. What was the signal? Was it was it a, an audible signal? What, what was it exactly? What happens is it's a, basically an electromagnetic pulse. So you, you've got a radio receiver. The telescope, the big ear, is basically a radio receiver. And so what it does is, like a radio, it just picks up signals. And most of the time, it's just uh, hitting static, nothing interesting. But then all of a sudden, you just get this sudden sort of electrical uh, spike in the antenna. And that, you know, registers as a series of, of letters and digits, as it was uh, in the way that they were recording it. Um, so, so you just, um, when, it, when you get the printout, you just see this sort of peak, effectively. So free will is on your list of 13 things that, that can't be explained, but why? I mean, free will seems to be pretty self-apparent, that free will is free will. We, we decide to do something and we do it because we choose to do it. That's free will. Um, I guess you had to ask that, didn't you? I did. Uh, I was destined to ask. I've been, I've been meaning to ask that all my life. <laughs> um, it's a very interesting topic. So, I mean, it's it's difficult. When we, when we think of free will, I think, well, you know, I decided what I had for breakfast this morning. You know, I decided that I was going to talk to you now. Um, I, you know, I make all kinds of decisions about my life. So it feels like I have free will. But when you sort of pair it right back, to, you know, I'm going to make a decision about when I'm going to move my finger and I'm, I'm going to decide and I'm going to consciously decide to move my finger at a certain moment. And when neuroscientists do this experiment and they wire up people's brains and they say, okay, whenever you're ready, move your finger. And they're reading the brain waves at the time and they can actually predict, and this is an extraordinary thing, up to seven seconds in advance, they can read your brain waves and tell you basically when you've decided to do it. Um, so in, another interesting experiment was done in Germany where you, you could decide whether you were going to touch a left or a right button effectively. 
And, and, and of course, people just sort of thought, well, you know, I'm, they made their minds up and right, I'm going to touch the left button and they touched the left button. But when they did the statistics from reading the brainwaves, they found that actually the signal was there before the people were conscious of the decision that they'd made. And so the inference that, that the neuroscientists draw from this is actually our brains do something and they kind of make decisions and then they tell us about them and then we assume that those decisions are our decisions. And of course, they are our decisions if you think of, you know, the brain is just part of you um, or, you know, there's nothing special within the brain that somehow is you being conscious. So what neuroscientists are finding is that actually we have a situation where we think we have free will, we think we're making decisions, but actually what's happening is something is, is happening within the brain to make a decision between left and right, or you know, when to move a finger, or you know, maybe much more complex things. And those things are then fed to our consciousness effectively, and we then believe that we are making the decision to do them. But you know, somebody reading your brainwaves could tell you exactly what you're gonna so-called decide to do, you know, seven seconds before you actually make that, you know, so-called decision. So we're finding there's a really sort of blurred boundary between what we're conscious of uh, making a decision to do and what other people can absolutely predict that we're going to do so, you know, by looking at the brainwave. So are you saying that, okay, you're going to, I'm going to sit down and move my finger and I don't know that that's what you're going to tell me to do. And then you tell me to do it and I move my finger. And before you even told me we, we were going to be moving fingers, I'd already decided to move my finger? What it is, is that um, you make a decision about when you're going to move your finger. And I can watch your brainwaves and I can tell you when you're going to move your finger before you are conscious that you've made a decision that you're going to move your finger at that moment. I'm speaking with Michael Brooks. He's author of the book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense. And he is host of the podcast, Science-ish. Like you and most everyone else, I've been spending a lot more time at home, which gives me time to look around the house and see things that eh, could be better. Like the lighting is too dim in one room. So I'm doing something about that with Lamps Plus. After all, Lamps Plus is the nation's largest lighting retailer, so why would I go anywhere else? What's great about Lamps Plus is they have every lighting solution imaginable, but they also have so much more, even fire pits. I just ordered one for outside, and it just arrived. It's great. Lamps Plus has over 50,000 lighting and home furnishing products, from chandeliers, ceiling fans, lighting fixtures, even a wide assortment of mirrors and bar stools, and fire pits. Lamps Plus carries the most trusted brands, like Sean Beck. It's a 150-year-old lighting company from right here in the U.S. that specializes in handmade chandeliers with the world's finest crystals. A Sean Beck chandelier is sure to add the glamorous flair of luxury you're looking for, that wow factor that impresses everyone who sees it. And one of my favorite things about Lamps Plus is that most of their products ship for free and many the same day. I love what Lamps Plus has done for me, and you will too. Right now, Lamps Plus is helping you create the perfect holiday at home to brighten and add comfort to your space during their Get Ready for the Holidays sale. For a limited time, you can save up to 50% on hundreds of lighting, furniture, and home decor designs by going to lampsplus.com something. That's lampsplus.com slash something to save up to 50% on select items. Lampsplus.com slash something.
Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. Making you old-fashioned today with Wild Turkey Bourbon 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old-fashioned. It has that perfect boldness. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. You know, just again yesterday, I had a listener email asking me about the toothbrush I use and have been talking about here on the podcast, the Quip toothbrush. Now, I know you think, well, really, toothbrush? Perhaps not the most exciting topic on the planet. But when you start brushing with a Quip toothbrush, I think you'll be impressed, maybe even amazed. Quip is an electric toothbrush that is a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. And then they deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. I just got my new shipment the other day. Quip is on Oprah's O-List, named one of Time's Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com something right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com something. Let me spell it for you. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P, getquip.com something. So, Michael, I just, I just want to be clear on this, that it's not like, it's not that you looked at my brainwave and saw that I was going to move my finger before we even started talking about moving fingers. No, because it's actually there. You can watch the, the what's something called the readiness potential in the brain. You can watch it build up so that the brain is going to move that finger. You can see that a movement is going to happen. but actually, And you can kind of see from the readiness potential when that movement is actually going to finally happen. And the people who are doing the experiment report the time that they made the decision to move the finger. And it's actually at, you know, well after the brain has already sort of um, made it happen effectively or set the thing in motion. So, so it, the issue is, is one of thinking that we've made a decision, but if you, you can kind of see inside the brain and the clockwork of the brain, and you can see that the thing is already in motion well before you've made you know, your decision to do it. And the hypothesis of where that comes from is what? But so the hypothesis is that once you are in a situation where you know you aren't going to do something eventually, your brain is just doing it. There's nothing special. There's no sort of ghost in the machine. There's no special you within there. So you are just your brain, um, and and you know the the idea that you suddenly are consciously making a decision to do something is the illusion that actually your brain is just doing something, and it's kind of lets you in on it. So that consciousness of what's uh, about to happen. You think you, you know, you're in control of that, but actually all that's happening, it seems from these experiments, is that your brain lets you in on it you know, just before it actually happens. So it, is it that we don't know where it comes from, or maybe the, the, the process of deciding what to do is a longer process, up to seven seconds longer, perhaps, than we think it is? I'm not, I'm... Exactly. Yeah, so, so the, you know, obviously there's something in our brains sets in motion this this thing of like okay you're going to make you're going to choose between left and right and something in the brain chooses left or right and then eventually 
it comes into our consciousness that we are going to choose, say, left. The thing is that I can read those brain waves sort of seven seconds before then. So it's before you're conscious of whether you've chosen left or right. I could tell you whether you've chosen left or right. How does death not make sense? It seems pretty much, pretty much, uh, you know, well, you're alive and now you're dead. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And it's an interesting kind of, you know, ongoing debate in, in biology. But actually, it doesn't, you know, we don't have to die. There are plenty of animals like turtles, tortoises, whales that seem to live and live and live for such enormous lengths of time. So we think that there's the kind of um, the theory where, you know, there's just wear and tear and eventually your cells can't repair themselves. Um, and uh, there's a kind of theory that says, well, actually, you know, there's, there's no sort of biological advantage to death. When we evolved, uh, we evolved for individual selection, not for group selection. So you would say, OK, well, you know, death makes sense because we've got to make room for the next generation. But there's nothing in the theory of evolution that allows an individual to kind of uh, back off for the sake of the group or the sake of the you know, larger society. So you can't program it in. So um, what you could say is, oh, you know, well, it's just wear and tear. Uh, you know, our telomeres don't don't repair. So there's parts of our chromosomes that just kind of you know, gradually degrade over time. But actually, they, they're not that linked to um, to senescence and aging and things. So we don't have a good theory just for why things eventually become decrepit. It, it's sort of and it, it all seems quite fixable. I mean, this is why a number of biologists who work in this area are working really hard to say, you know, basically, we, you know, we seem to have some things happen. Uh, there's degradation in the in the DNA DNA um, replication. Uh, the success of that errors creep in, but actually, there's no reason why a um, an organism has to die. You know, you look at something like uh, the uh, naked mole rat, and you see it. You know, it doesn't get cancer. It doesn't, you know, have these kind of errors that build up. It seems to have repair mechanisms. And so, the you know, the thing is that that death actually isn't necessary. It isn't a necessary part of evolution. And uh, it's quite a mystery and quite an interesting mystery uh, and obviously a great one to solve um, to say, well, you know, maybe actually, you know, we don't have to put up with this. You know, maybe there's something that we can do that just puts this off because there's plenty of biological creatures that um, seem to, you know, not suffer from any kind of senescence at all. But but even those creatures, those tortoises and things that live seemingly forever do die. I mean, eventually, there, there is always an end. Everything has an end. Well, uh, you say that. I mean, they, they live ridiculously long times. And actually, there's, there's various creatures that, you know, we've been watching and, and seem to live for hundreds of years. And, and it's, it's not true that everything, you know, necessarily has to die. So um, there are ways of repairing. Uh, there are ways of, of uh, uh, lengthening lifespan, for instance, by caloric restriction is a famous one that's found in, in nematode worms, where you can restrict their diet and, and sort of um, expand their, their lifespan sort of three or, three or four times over. And so there seem to be biochemical mechanisms by which you can avoid the standard sort of degradation that goes on. So, uh, so what I'm saying, I guess, is that actually, you know, we don't really understand what 
death is and why it happens. And of course, you know, we have this cultural view that, of course, it, like as you say, everything comes to an end, all things must die, you know, and culturally, that's, that's how we think. Uh, but there are certain researchers working in this area, such and one is Aubrey de Grey, who's, who's setting up a, a firm in Silicon Valley, who says that, you know, we need to actually just take these kind of what we think of as aging and, and inevitable disease, we need to start taking it seriously. Um, he has a very interesting perspective where he says, um, this is you know, sort of ageism in that, you know, if, if young people get a disease, uh, we do our best to cure it. You know, it's all over the newspapers. If somebody's dying uh, at a ridiculously early age, we hate it. We, we think this is unnatural. And his argument is that any sort of disease and decrepitude is unnatural. And, and we should fight it, whether it's in a six year old or a 60 year old, when it, whether it's in an eight year old or an 85 year old. You know, we, we should be fighting this. But even as life expectancy has gone up, and on average we are living longer, the top age we don't make much progress on. The, the oldest person always seems to be about 125 years or old or something when they die, and there haven't been big breakthroughs there. It, it does seem as if at some point we do, <laughs> we wear out. I think that's true. I think that's what we're finding. But I think um, his point, Aubrey de Grey's point, and, and other researchers looking into this are saying that actually, you know, we, we are starting to understand some of the, the degradation that's going on. We are starting to learn how we can avoid some of that. And um, for the last um, 20, 30 years, we, we are making progress. But of course, you know, what we've had is you know, this incredible doubling of human lifespan uh, over the last 200 years, which has taken us into you know the 80s and 90s. And so now we've got a whole new raft of diseases to, that we're actually having to deal with, things like um, dementia, Alzheimer's diseases, Parkinson's. Um, you know, we've got you know these things that are starting to um, happen to us uh, because we, just because we're living all, for longer and longer. You know, I think that cancer is is more prevalent basically because eventually you know you you will develop some kinds of cancer um, because of errors that build up in 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 your DNA. And so we're in a position where we're starting to come across these diseases. So of course it's quite early days really in learning how to deal with them and how to beat them. But there's no reason in principle that, that says, you know, we cannot beat these, that, you know, they aren't different to other diseases. They aren't different to other things that we've have managed to cure. You know, and if we have a kind of more positive attitude towards them, we may well be able to find you know, ways in which we extend our lifespan quite radically. Well, it is so interesting to think about these things and ponder them. And if you want to hear about the other ones, because obviously we haven't talked about all 13, the book is called 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, The Most Intriguing Scientific Mysteries of Our Times by Michael Brooks. Michael is also the author of a book called At the Edge of Uncertainty, which is a little different but equally interesting. And he's co-host of the podcast Science-ish, which looks at the scientific issues raised by popular culture fiction like TV and movies and such. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you being here. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com.
Hey, y'all, it's your girl, Shangela, and I want to invite you to Hallelujah Happy Hour. Every week, honey, I'm shaking up a cocktail, making a playlist, and hanging with friends. Okay, let's spill. You're going to tell that you are messy. Oh, he's so hot. I'm in him. Is he listening to this? And it's going to be what? Sickening. Follow Hallelujah Happy Hour and listen for free on Spotify. Just as I suspect you have people in your life who make you feel smart and make you feel good about yourself, you may also have people in your life that, when you talk to them, they make you feel stupid. They make you question yourself. They make you feel wrong all the time. There's actually a name for that. It's gaslighting. It's the way people manipulate you, and and it's really fascinating. Therapist Robin Stern coined the term gaslighting, and she wrote a book about it called The Gaslight Effect, How to Spot and Survive the Hidden Manipulation Others Use to Control Your Life. Hi, Robin. So explain the essence of the gaslight effect. The gaslight effect describes what happens to you when you begin to second-guess yourself because you've allowed another person to define your reality and to erode your sense of self, your confidence, and your judgment. Gaslighting is a form of manipulation that consciously or unconsciously seeks to sow seeds of doubt in the individual who's being targeted or members of a group with the hope that those people who are being targeted will ultimately question their own memory, perception, and sanity, or even their character. So give me an example. Uh, Let's say you say to me, I'm going to meet you tonight at 7 o'clock. And I say, great. And then I show up, and it's 7 o'clock, and it's 7.30, and it's a quarter to 8, and you are late, and you apologize, and I say, no problem. And then it happens again tomorrow, and then it happens the next time. And I say to you, you know what? really don't like the fact that you're, you're keeping me waiting, and you're late um, so much of the time. And you say to me, what is your problem? <laughs> you're so uptight about time. Who hasn't had that happen to there everybody's got that person in their life that nothing's ever their fault it's your fault cuz you're like you're so uptight about time I love that So exactly right and so it's about deflecting responsibility not taking responsibility it's also about never really addressing the issue I often tell a story that goes like this I say to my friend or you may say to your friend hey you know what really um been trying to make plans with you, and it's really hard. Did I do something? Is there some, are you upset with me about something that happened, or is there something, some reason that we're not getting together? Hey, come on. You are so sensitive. And you know what? Maybe I am so sensitive, but that still doesn't change the fact that you haven't been wanting to make plans. It still doesn't change the fact that you didn't address what I said to you. Right? And so things don't get resolved, and things continue to stay in the loop where you, the victim or the target of gaslighting, are beginning to question yourself so that over time you're thinking, well, you, initially you might have been thinking, wait a minute, you didn't answer my question. Over time you're thinking, you know what, I'm so sensitive. Maybe somebody else wouldn't be so uptight about that. Maybe somebody else would have just let it go. And it happens in any kind of relationship. The pairing that I've seen most often 
is women talking about the men in their life gaslighting them. But I certainly have seen women talking about their friends or men talking about women gaslighting them or people talking about their family members engaging in this kind of psychological manipulation. So you've mentioned that this is a problem when things happen over time, which I suspect means that you can't make a big deal necessarily about one instance of this. If you're 15 minutes late, well, you're 15 minutes late. But if you're 15 minutes or half an hour late every single time, that's when it becomes a problem. You're exactly right, Mike. I mean, so the three stages that I identified after working with people for many years and noticing this dynamic were the first stage being disbelief, the second being defense, and the third being depression. So an example of disbelief is you're, you're on a movie line and, uh, or you're walking down the street and somebody says hello to you and you say hello back. And the person you're with, your boyfriend at the time, may say, or your girlfriend, why are you flirting with that person? Or don't you see how he's flirting with you? And you think, God, he's being so silly. That, that's kind of crazy. And you dismiss it and you say, oh, don't be silly. That's not happening. But then every single time you go out and somebody says hello to you on the street, your boyfriend or girlfriend accuses you of flirting or tells you you're being naive if you don't know that somebody's flirting with you. And over time, you get caught up because the relationship is so important to you because you believe in, in the person. In some way, you've given them power to assert their reality and you start to defend yourself. So now you've moved from disbelief, like that's kind of silly, to defense. And you're saying, don't be silly. You know, I'm, no, it's not really happening. Can't you see? I'm just being friendly and I smile at people and I always like to be friendly. And then when that continues over time and you're caught up in ruminating, you're also beginning to stop reaching out to your social circles because they're arguing with you about your boyfriend or your girlfriend's perception and you're staying in the relationship and buying into that dynamic, and you begin to get depressed. And in the third stage, you're almost trying to make his or her case. Well, I am actually flirting. Well, you know, can't, can't I just own it? Like, I, I really, I was smiling. Maybe, maybe I didn't realize I was flirting. He's probably right. And so that's a drastic oversimplification, but it is the progression. Right. So in the first case, something happens, and you're right. You're not making a big deal about it. It happened once. It sounds so silly, and it's not really who you are. In the second case, you're defending who you are. And in the third stage, depression, you've fallen so deeply into this dynamic that you begin to argue his side. All of the examples that you've given to, to illustrate the point, and it's smart to do this to illustrate points, are very black and white that there's no culpability on the one person. I mean, the, the other the guy in the, that's accusing you of flirting is really being a jerk because you're not flirting. But there's a lot of gray areas in real life where maybe, yeah, maybe you were a little too flirty this time. And so it, it isn't always that black and white. It isn't always that black and white. And often the, the thing that, that or the, the accusation that um, leads the gaslighting is something that's true of you. Maybe you were, in fact, flirting. Maybe you were more friendly than you might be if it were somebody who you didn't have that kind of energy with. But to be slammed with or accused about something that you're doing, rather than your friend or partner saying, hey, you know what, I, I was uncomfortable with the way you looked at that guy. Can we talk about it? That's a very different conversation 
that's a very different um, lead to a dynamic where then you're having conversation about what did he feel? What did I feel? What was I doing? Gee, I didn't want to make you uncomfortable. Rather than you, rather than somebody saying, being on your side of the net and telling you what you were doing in a way that then you need to defend yourself. And it's very hard to walk away from that dynamic. When you are caught up in wanting to make sure that your friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend doesn't think ill of you, it's really hard to walk away. It's really hard to stop the power struggle and say, you know what, we're just not going to agree about this. Or, I, you know, maybe I gave him a little extra smile. It's okay. Do you think that people who do this, who gaslight, who manipulate this way, know what they're doing? Or this is just their way of communicating that's very manipulative? I mean, what's the difference between influence and manipulation? Yeah, so that's a really good point. I'll answer it by starting with telling you where I got the title from. So in 1944, there was a very popular movie called Gaslight, uh, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, where the husband in the movie um, diabolically manipulates his wife with the intention of ultimately stealing her inheritance and sending her to a mental institution. So in that case, he really was out to prove that she was crazy. So he would literally manipulate objects in the house, and then she would notice that they were moved and or they were missing and, and um, ask him about them. And he said, no, 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 you're making it up. Or he would move objects and then ask her where they were, and she wouldn't know because he had moved them. And she began to think she was losing her mind, which is what he was telling her. Oh, you're so forgetful. You know you're not feeling well. You know you haven't been yourself. And over time, with all these missing objects and his manipulation, she began to, to think that, including the manipulation of the old English gaslight in the house, which is where the movie got its name. And in that case, there is an intent to undermine the person. But often, it's not that intentional. It's often not that diabolical. It's just the way you learned how to do it. So when I'm uncomfortable, I can either take a deep breath, notice my feelings, name my feelings, manage my feelings, and talk from that place of wherever I am or whatever I see is going on. Or I can completely deflect my reality by focusing on you and telling you what you're not doing right or what you're do- the way you should be acting or something about you, undermining you rather than talking about myself. And oftentimes when somebody who's doing gaslighting is triggered, in order for them to regain their psychological stability, they will engage in this kind of behavior where they're controlling the dynamic by asserting that their reality is right and there's something wrong with you. Well, we all like to think our reality is right. It is right for us. That's our, that's our reality. So, sure, we're trying to, we want the, it would be so much easier if the whole world would see it see the world the way I see it, but they, they don't, turns out. Sure. But then the person who's trying to gaslight will not be successful if you hold on to what you just said to me, which is, I'm going to see the world the way I want to see it. The first because, example, that, the first example yeah. that you used in our discussion here was the person who's you know, chronically late. 
you know, and then gives mm-hmm. you a hard time for bringing up the fact that they're chronically late. And I've mm-hmm. known people like that. Um, I've known people who are chronically late, and, and I've said something about their lateness. But that's an example of, of a behavior that's hard to break, at least my experience. And, and so I decided, you know what, the relationship is worth it to me. I know they're going to be late. They're always going to be late. And, and so that I took a side and I moved over here and, and I, I don't make it an issue anymore because I know they're going to be late and that's fine right. with me because I, yeah. I'm willing to pay that price. Exactly. There, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because you've decided that whatever it means for that person is not either hurtful enough or, or intentional enough or is just about who they are and it's not about you and you're going to look at a side and that's your choice to make. Right? That's your choice to make. But if you decided to have the conversation and the result of that conversation was that person turned the tables on you and told you there was something wrong with you for even bringing it up, how would you feel then? Well, I, I'd feel terrible. But, but there is a difference between gaslighting and, you know, if somebody says, you're too flirty or you're always late, well maybe it's because you're too flirty and you're always late. In other words, uh, maybe the conversation is warranted. The conversation may very well be warranted. Honey, are, you know, what's going on that you're feeling so insecure? You know, I'm, I, I am, you know I've always flirted with people. Like, why now? Or um, I really tell me more. I, I didn't realize it. Did I do something that hurt your feelings? Or, hey, um, I'm not aware that I'm doing it. Thanks for pointing it out. Or, you know what, I, I don't agree with you, and you have a right to, to your opinion, but, but that's not the problem. The problem is really not whether you're flirting or whether it, you need to take a look at that. The problem is what's actually happening between the two people. So in that co-created moment, you're telling me about myself without asking me, you're telling me either what I'm feeling or what my character is like or um, that I don't know how to think straight. When somebody begins to tell you about your experience or why you should or shouldn't feel a certain way, there's trouble in that dynamic. Ultimately, though, uh, do you find that gaslighters, when they're called out on it, will say, oh, geez, I'm sorry, or they, that they don't change, they, they don't even see it? will apologize and say, my God, I had no idea I was making you feel this way. Yes, let's go to therapy. Yes, let me read the book. Let me me recalibrate. 30% will stay the same. And 30% get angrier. (laughs) Well, those, those are your odds. One in three. Yeah. Yeah. But I have seen people move away from this dynamic with a lot of intention, a lot of commitment to being their best selves, a lot of self-awareness, and a lot of practice. But it requires that decision to make each interaction a healthier interaction, to call the person out if they're intimidating you, if they're manipulating you, if they're spinning your reality, when that's happening, and not wait until three days later.
Well, as I said in the very beginning, when you describe the gaslight effect uh, and use the example of the person who's always late, I mean, that just, I'm, I know people like that. Everybody knows people like that. And, and now it's good to be able to put a, a magnifying glass on that interaction and, and see what's really going on and, and, and the problems it can create. My guest has been Robin Stern. She is a therapist and author of the book, The Gaslight Effect, How to Spot and Survive the Hidden Manipulations Others Use to Control Your Life. And there's a link to the book in the show notes. Thanks, Robin. Thank you, Mike. Whether you're writing a blog or sending an email or a tweet, there are a lot of words that you can do without. For example, the word that. That is superfluous most of the time. Find a sentence with the word that in it and then read it out loud. Then read it again without the that and see if it works. If it still works, then delete the that. An example might be... Uh, The boss told his employees that they were getting a raise. Or it could just be, the boss told his employees they were getting a raise. You don't need the that, so take it out. The word honestly. People use honestly to add emphasis. The problem is, the minute you tell your reader that this particular statement is honest, you've implied that the rest of your words were not honest. The word absolutely. Adding this word to most sentences is redundant. For example, something is either necessary or it's not necessary, but absolutely necessary doesn't make it more necessary. The word amazing is overused to death. Amazing is synonymous with wonderful, incredible, startling, marvelous, astonishing, astounding, remarkable, miraculous, surprising, mind-blowing, and staggering. Maybe one of those words would work better. The problem is, if everything is amazing, then nothing is amazing. Literally. Literally means literal. Actually happened as stated without exaggeration. More often than not, when the term is used, the writer really means figuratively, not literally. Whatever is happening is being described metaphorically. No one literally waits on pins and needles because that would be, <laughs> that would be very painful. And irregardless. Irregardless and regardless mean the same thing. Regardless has always been correct in the English language. The word irregardless pretty much bullied its way into the language because so many people use it. But regardless is preferred. And that is something you should know. You'll find us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. We post content there that we don't put in the show. So if you like the podcast, you should be following us on social media. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.